This is the Abuja Literary Society podcast. What you're about to listen to is a panel discussion from the Abuja Literary and Arts Festival 2020. Okay. Okay, maybe. All right. Oh, yeah. Hello, everybody. Good evening. Hello. Uh, yeah, good evening, Carabo. Good evening, GK, my good friend. <laughs> nice to talk to you again. Same here, same here. And good evening, Jamil. Uh, is it? Uh, what's the time in South Africa? Should be afternoon, I think. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, it's only half past six. It's six o'clock. Oh, okay. Yeah, you guys are ahead of us about an hour or two. Yeah, yeah. thirty minutes to an hour. Yeah, nice to see your face now. <laughs> My pleasure. Thank you. Yeah. Well, thank you. Um, it was a bit um, uh, difficult for me when this topic came up. Really, this is something that is very is masculine. Some quality is terrible. Yeah. Your sound quality. Yeah. Hello. You're breaking okay. up. Oh yeah. I'm breaking up. Yeah. Okay. Can you hear me now? We can, but it crackles when you speak. Maybe speak a bit slow. Okay. Help. There's a crackle. Okay. Okay, let me see. Yeah, it's okay now. Let me see what I without the yeah. Mm. Let's hold on. Yeah, don't use earphones. Uh, let me turn off the Bluetooth and see what I, yeah. Let me, yeah, I'm let me see what I will just work with the, with the laptop. With the, the laptop audio directly, yeah. The voice is not very clear. On the side. Hi, hello. Hi, Odafe. Hello, James. Okay. okay, you can hear now. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I I thought the earpiece would be better about that. I think it's better. It's better now, yeah? Oh, okay. I'm, I'm talking directly to the computer now. All right, good evening. Once again, yeah. Hi. Uh, uh, yeah, we'll, yeah we'll, we'll start with, uh, first of all, we, we all have profiles. I went through all your profiles. I know DK person. So um, I tried to create some questions that are specific to each of your pursuits, you know, uh, before we go down to something a little more general, you know. So, um, uh, prejudice, uh, like we said before, is a, is a very broad, um, uh, a very broad spectrum, and uh, 
uh, even from between three of you, the first thing I find out is that you guys have um, some special um, areas you've been taking on, you know. So um, I would like to start with DK first. Um, DK, we've worked together and uh, you have done quite a whole lot of things in this direction. Um, and first of all, it would be nice to uh, describe prejudice for, for the audience, for those who are not uh, completely conversant with the, with the, with the subject. Uh, prejudice, as the, as, the, as the Oxford says, in very simple terms, is about having opinions. It's about having opinions about uh, people or groups of people, you know, and uh, uh, without, uh, without, having, uh, without the facts, you know, having preconceived ideas about a group of people, probably on the basis of, uh, uh, of, uh, of some personal experience, you know, or, or some narrow experience. You know. So, um, uh, on that premise, I think uh, it would be nice to start with DK. DK does a lot in, uh, in that regard within the political sphere, if I put it that way. He has taken a lot. Nigeria is quite a diverse country, and DK has taken a, a lot of uh, time and his energy to put into um, the debate about Nigeria's diversity. Uh, he had this project that he put up uh, a couple of years ago, I think it was in 2016. Thereabouts, and made in Nigeria, which I'm proud I had to uh, participate in as uh, an artist who made uh, part of the um, uh, graphics around the, the, the program. I remember I painted a backdrop for that program. And uh, this program has gone around the country. I don't think there's any spoken word uh, uh, <laughs> event that has been so widely um, um, presented also widely circulated by any individual, at least I know of Nigeria. If you go around Africa, you might find that it's also, it also holds its ground in, in so many places. So I think he's a very important uh, person to discuss this thing. It has, uh, it has the, uh, the pedigree, it has what it takes. Um, so we start with this. First of all, I, I, I have this question, I don't know. Uh, do, do you think DK, Uh, do you think it's? Uh, do you think writers actually have that obligation? Because you know, prejudice is something that has. Um, I believe it, sometimes there's a merit, if I put it that way. So there might be a creative merit to it, in the sense that someone has a, a personal agenda, a personal uh, uh, argument, or uh, something historical that you want to put forth, and uh, you can do that through um, through writing. So do you think it's? Um, do you think it's? Uh, do you think an artist or a writer has that obligation? Uh, it's something that you are compelled to do as a writer. Uh. Um, um, well, compelled as artists and as creatives, we're we're free to write on whatever we want to write about. There is no compulsion, so to speak, to write on anything or to write in this way or to write in that way. Uh, so I don't think there is a compulsion to tackle prejudice, so to speak. But it feeds into a, a, an ideological debate about the, the role of art in human society. Uh, the classical debate between art for art's sake and then art with a more sort of functional objective. And yeah. that's particularly in times of great upheaval in society, when society is in a mix, it's turbulent, uh, when there are lots of pressing issues, uh, there is pressure on the artist to speak to those issues, you know, because people 
have needs and as an artist you can't ignore the needs of the people around you so living in a very fractured society that is a sort of uh driven by fault lines ethnicity religion gender all kinds of things um i feel i feel personally you know a pressure to speak to those issues uh, yeah. so so that's that's my perspective on it okay. yeah you know i asked this question because I've, I've seen over the years we've seen writers who have started off you know on the broader uh, spectrum and then over the years as they get older they get um sometimes they get uh, disillusioned with the, uh, the, the, the not being able to really address this issue outside building their own personal pedigrees. I know uh, people like Achebe who took a lot of children, Achebe, I mean, who took a lot of time to talk about the troubles of Nigeria and the, the challenges of diversity and the things we could do to, um, to mitigate these things. And, and over time, it was as if he, at some point, it was almost like a hopeless case you know, for him. Uh, uh, showing car, uh, literally went to jail you know, over that kind of uh, issue, you know, and, uh, and uh, eventually we find people getting weird out, you know. He himself at some point said this was like a curse on him, even made it more uh, difficult with uh, uh, the confirmation of the, of the Nobel Prize and all that, and it was as if he was not crossed with uh, having to tackle this issue. And, uh, so that's why uh, uh, it's, it's something very important, and, uh, and uh, I'm, I'm glad that you are taking uh, that mantle, and uh, we hope to see more from you in that regard. Thank you. Uh, Karabo, I, uh, we don't know personally, but I, I have um, I've had the reason to go through your profile and uh, found it impressive. Um, Karabo is uh, a radio personality, he's uh, a human rights activist, uh, discusses uh, issues in gender, equality, you know, and, uh, the issues of, uh, of subjugation of uh, minorities, you know, if I could put it on a broader um, spectrum. Uh, I have a, a couple of uh, questions as well for you in that regard. Okay. Uh, I think I put something down. As a broadcast personality writer and social political comment commentator, you have caught your teeth within the heart of the South African public intellectual world. Um, I mean, dealing with prejudice, racial prejudice, uh, uh, gender inequality, and, uh, and uh, some of these things. Uh, where the first question says, do you see a significant improvement in the race and ethnic tensions in South Africa uh, since the end of apartheid? Do you think there's uh, do you think there's progress? Can you really uh, uh, come out and say, yeah, I think we have been moving from one level of, uh, of, uh, progress, of political progress, social political pro progress to the other? Do you think there's any, do you have optimism about that? Uh, about yeah, our thank, you. thank you, Obi, and uh, good evening, everyone. Um, just a minor point of correction there, I'm a literary journalist, so uh, I use broadcast as a medium and I specialize in literature, so I'm not like a personality, right. like I can't DJ, I can't discuss sport, you know, so I, I, I focus yeah. particularly on the literary arts. And in terms of okay. significant improvement in race and ethnic relations in South Africa since the end of apartheid, it depends on who you ask, you know, um, and the metrics that you use to measure this improvement. 
So for example, during Mandela's presidency, there was a lot of uh, hope. Uh, we were yeah. drunk on that Kool-Aid of racial unity, uh, hence the moniker termed by Archbishop Emeritus Desmond Tutu, the Rainbow Nation. Yeah. Yeah. But then very swiftly after that, when Tabombeki became president, uh, and especially when he gave this, uh, his I am an African speech, and uh, there yes. was a very strong sense, even among the business and white community, that he would actually put more pressure on black economic empowerment and, and changing the racial profile of the haves versus the have-nots in South Africa. We started to receive yeah. a kind of backlash where people who used to refer to themselves as European, that is white people, would try and claim ownership being African, even though their behavior showed otherwise. So that dream started whittling away very quickly, yeah. especially with the failure of the ANC government to deliver on the promises of political suffrage uh, to the South African people. And the very um, overt backlash and resistance from white people to be part of the South African community. So um, in terms of that, that sort of transition period and to the present day, We've seen that, you know, the, the, the empowerment of South African people across race, across gender, uh, across, um, across whatever type of body that you inhabit, right, did not come to be realized. Um, and and yeah. that, kind of, that kind of disintegrated to the point where we have now, where, uh, where uh, Jamil lives, the Western Cape, um, there, there's a group of people who actually want cessation. And they're very clear that they want the cessation of, of long racial lines. And then within the black community in South Africa, um, there is still a lot of division along the apartheid, um, you know, delineation of what makes up the black people. So you have black African, you have colored, you have Indian, and, um, you know, I like to call it side by side racism that still exists. And with all of that, we also have anti-African uh, foreigner sentiment, uh, xenophobia. So really, it depends on, you know, if you're measuring by metrics, how has that kind of, you know, um, that, that kind of you know ethnic relations improved in South Africa. Cosmetically, it may look that way, especially in terms of our marketing. But if you actually speak to people, you find white people on their own in the conversations that they have. That it's not the same. Uh, hence, a book written by Janmil uh, Farouk Khan uh, that came out just two months ago still speaks so so, so painfully about that that, that 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 relationship. And even with students protest in South Africa, the Fees Must Fall was also about decolonizing the universities as white spaces that were that were hostile towards black children, if not overtly violent. The fact that just very recently at a formerly white government school that a girl and uh, black girls had to protest because the teacher said that her Afro wasn't acceptable on school. So even the cultures um, in which you can gain access as a black person are still very much against you and anti you, not only as a black person, but as a, a, a body that isn't a cis heterosexual male, <laughs> you know? Um, so yeah, um, overall, it's, it's not looking good, but there are small pockets of improvement, but I don't feel that way. Okay, uh, a little more. Um, Mandela, a lot of us actually look up to Mandela. We have always done. And uh, there are people within the school of thought that he was, was a bit too idealistic and uh, made so by his long years in, uh, away from humanity, if I can put it that way. He was a bit idealistic and uh, many of his arguments about integration and all that are not uh, possible. Um, can you share a little? What do you think about that? Mandela was a man of his moment. 
right? So I think that on, 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 on one level, it would be unjust to pin all those expectations and desires on him. But he was the, he, he kind of epitomized, you know, that idea of hope. So it's, it's the same as kind of having, you know, having expected Barack Obama to, to make Black Lives Matter in the US just because he became president. Remember, it was a negotiated settlement. So the trade-offs and the people who made those trades, and this is me being generous towards him, is that they thought that we could work it out. And that is a big debate within spaces of when you try and transform colonial spaces, right? Uh, yeah. do, you, do you get in and try and change the house from inside, or do you break the house down? I mean, also yeah. for my generation, for example, when Tanasha Chikmati gave her, um, gave her Ruth first lecture and spoke of my generation as a generation of collaborators, because we're the ones who went to high school with white kids when South Africa became free, right? Yeah. And that, you know, we didn't fight hard enough and we collaborated with our presence. But remember that our parents just expected us to get in, assimilate, our heads down, work hard, and once we get into the white man's house, we'll start to dismantle it from inside. And that's proving not to be that easy. So I'd say yes, uh, the criticism against Mandela and his generation is warranted, but we also need to look at it in the historical context where, you know, they were charged with preventing a particular kind of war taking place. And in the broader geopolitics, it was, you know, the dissolution of communism, the fall of the Berlin Wall, the shift of a global economy towards a kind of neoliberal mandate. So, yeah, you know, um, the criticism is warranted, but we have to be circumspect as to who we pin that on. Because there's even ideas that even the very ANC that he came on to lead was not the same ANC that he had left behind when he went to Robben Island, right? Uh, in many aspects, the ANC went rogue when the big men went to Robben Island. Yeah. So, you know, it's a stuff, it's stuff to keep on earthing as historians do their work. But to claim to put all the all the all the triumphs and all the tragedies on one individual, I think I think it's a big all right. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Uh, Jamil, thank you. Um, Jamil is a uh, is also a writer, an essayist. I've had time to go through some of his work and uh, some of his uh, more of his opinions on social media and uh, um, very impressive for, for a continent as ours, where there's a lot of uh, phobia for so many things. There's phobia for so many things, you know. Um, uh, in particular, I, I see that he has a special interest in the LGBTQ community. Um, it's a very contentious uh, uh, topic in Africa, even made more contentious by the fact that uh, many of uh, these prejudices have become legal in many parts of Africa. I'm going to come to that. Uh, later. Um, first of all, uh, I'm not. I'm not in South Africa. I know our own challenges here about uh, sexual minorities. Um, what is your? Um, how optimistic are you about um, about addressing the, the LGBTQ problem in South Africa? One, and then, uh, you think? Uh, do you think your colleagues as writers? Do you think they are putting enough uh, impetus to that uh, to that fight for? for equal rights for LGBTQ and everybody else? I mean, in relation to uh, society and everyone else. Yeah. I'd like to start with the second question. I think, um, I think a lot of us, a lot of us are doing really amazing, really radical work 
in imagining our society anew, because I think that's, you know, that's a big part of what writers have to do. Um, you cannot, you cannot physically take people by the ear and say, now you need to act like this and believe this and do that. But we can give people possibilities under which to imagine different worlds and give them a possi possibilities as to how to inhabit those worlds. So I think there's a big effort. There's a great effort. There's a, there's a lot of people who are using, using their creativity, not only just um, you know, their personal experiences, because I think as South African, well, as Africans in general, but as South Africans, um, we have, there's a lot of wounding to, to wade through. Um, and I think people are using not only that wounding, but also, you know, the, the, the ways in which one can use creativity to expand beyond those experiences of wounding, to give people an idea of what a world could look like if we weren't all bigots, if we weren't all prejudiced, if we didn't want to see our fellow human beings suffering. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think the, of course, it could, it could always be always be more but I think we also need to look at our societies in context and realize that we are all up against a, a machine, a machine that, 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 um, that thrives on but also replicates power and so within those structures we can only do so much so with, within that context I think, it's, I think it's amazing you know the kinds of things that writers and creatives are doing. Um, but then, I mean, optimistic. I think the thing about South Africa is, <laughs> the thing about South Africa is, um, I always like to say that we are the quintessential um, model family that sweeps abuse under the rug. So we look beautiful to, to the, you know, to the church and the neighbors yeah, and yeah. we all together, nobody would imagine that we have any problems at home. But it's because we sweep those problems under the rug and when we go out in public, we say, look at us, look how wonderful we are. We've, we've managed this, you know, this miracle that nobody else has been able to achieve. But we're dishonest. Um, and I think a lot of, a lot of what um, Karabo was pointing to when you asked her about the, the, you know, the improvements of the racial tensions and she said it depends on who you ask. The issue with getting an answer from the people that you ask is that they are dishonest. <laughs> so, um, so for me, I am as optimistic as I can be, but we have a complication in this country in that we have this constitution and the constitution is, is rated one of the best in the world. Um, and in, in, in theory, as a document that um, that allows you to, to challenge power structures. It, it certainly is one of the best in the world. But we still have the, the physical human beings who sit in the positions of power that have to review these grievances and have to actually turn this into a working document are not untouched by the very power structures that the constitution tries to prevent us from abusing. So, when we, when we look at advancement of, of, of human rights and also um, LGBTIQ rights in general, um, we, there's a contradiction to be held. There's a contradiction in that you, you live in a society that says to you, yes, on paper, 
um, there are provisions made for you to exist equally and freely. But what am I to do? What am I to do when I when I encounter um, queer phobia or homophobia in the street? Am I supposed to defend myself with a book? Um, and it becomes that visceral. It becomes that visceral because this is not just about disliking people. This is not just about having different opinions to people. This is about the the investment in in power and the lust for power that actually leads people to their graves. Mm -hmm. So, I suppose um, for for I mean, and for me, it would be a very different um, a different experience to somebody, for example, who lives in a township. You know, somebody who also has to contend with the violence of of of, of, of class inequality um, mm -hmm. that has to with the violence of gender inequality and all those different systems of dispossession and disenfranchisement position people differently in ways that make their queerness but one intersection of a very, very harrowing experience. Um, and so, so personally, for me, I think um, it's, I'm, I'm skeptical of optimism. Um, and that's generally also, <laughs> it's also generally my personality, which might also just be a protection mechanism, you know, because one, one starts believing in or hoping and you believe that there's a possibility on the horizon and then, and then it gets, you know, it gets yes. out of reach so easily. So for me, I think I, I reserve a healthy amount of skepticism about that. But uh, I'll still take South Africa above many countries in Africa in the sense that you first you have a legislation and then you start working on that legislation. It's, it's the important thing about a society is when there's a law in place. You know, when there's a law that says that uh, uh, people of sexual minorities do have equal rights and have a right to life, have a right to their orientation and all that. As long as there's a legislation, there's already an official position. Uh, yeah. We are having so many parts of uh, Africa, including Nigeria, where it, where the government or legislation is openly against sexual minorities. So we can't be talking about South Africa and Nigeria in that context because uh, it's as if we are still somewhere behind uh, in that regard. And um, just a little bit, do you think, um, uh, do, do, can you make any case for this? There are some who argue that the reason for these legislations, unfortunate legislations, are a result of the West, Western interference in, in African uh, uh, governance. You know, I, I remember sometime, I think in 2013 or there about 2012, uh, there was a lot of threats from, um, uh, from Western countries, including uh, Britain's uh, Cameron and, uh, and Obama in America, about uh, about certain sanctions that might be put in place if, you know, if we had, uh, if, if, if African countries impose these legislations, we are not there then. So for me, I think these things came um, as a result of the governments trying to prove a point. I don't think it's because they deliberately think there's any meaning to these laws, but because it was a case of people saying, look, this is our, our country and we need to manage our countries. You know? And uh, some of them, under, say, under the auspices of democracy, you have a large number of uh, citizens who say, no, we don't want this, therefore. Um, but I, I don't believe that the citizens have the right to impose injustice on the minorities. Uh, the mm -hmm. government should have the responsibility to 
to backtrack on any instincts by the majority that says the minority must not exist. So I, I don't find that a plausible excuse. Um, but do you have any, what do you think about, what, what's your position on this, on this debacle between the West and Africa in relation to, to this issue? Um, it's interesting. Um, and we also know that there's a very, um, very popular report about that, that tends to link um, a history of Africa to anti-homosexuality. Um, and, and the irony of it is, is that there's so much evidence, there's so much evidence for the fact that that's just simply not true. Um, so, so, I mean, on the one hand, also from a, from a citizen's perspective, there's, a, there's an active investment in, in ignorance and untruth. And it comes down, it comes down to the realization that um, that power structures reward prejudice and bigotry, and so in order to get nearer to those power structures, one has to internalize that prejudice and bigotry. Um, yeah. The structures that we currently have are premised on the exclusion of a majority for the benefit of a minority, um, and so hence, if we keep, if we start opening you know, spaces and whether they be political or religious or societal. The idea is that if you open it up to too many people, then, we, then each individual doesn't get as much as they could have got um, had it been closed. Um, and so then it's also about a competition for resources, you know, not just physical resources, but, um, you know, ideological resources. But in terms of the, of, the, of the you know governmental structures that that criminalize homosexuality um, on the basis of 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 its um, foreignness, if you will, mm. we I mean we also and the irony that that um, the push to accept um, queer people um, not just in society but also legislatively and to put structures in place for their protection is pushed by the West is actually a very twisted um, <laughs> sort of almost exception-like idea because the irony of that is that we know that in America particularly these um, Christian right-wing evangelist groups are particularly pouring resources into funding anti-homosexual um, anti-homosexual legislation and just general homophobia. Okay countries. So again, this is literally, and it comes back to the point that I just made about competition for resources. There are actual physical resources keep being poured into this agenda. So for you to, to stand, to, to push against that, then basically puts you on the outside and, and, and takes you out of the running to claim some of those resources. And the way in which historically Europe um, and later on, other iterations of Europe, such as America, have um, and as deliberately underdeveloped and devastated Africa now to create the conditions for people to be so desperate for reclaiming some of that, those resources and to basically just have some level of ease um, in, in the existence, they come back with plowing those resources into the country, into the countries that they devastated, and put conditions to it that actually require the deepest level of inhumanity. Okay, yeah, that's a nice one. 
Um, interestingly, since uh, 2014, that uh, the legislation happened in Nigeria, there's not been any single conviction. That, that tells you the, the seriousness of the entire thing. It's all political as far as I'm concerned. And uh, like I said before, it was just um, something that was standing your ground. And, uh, and uh, I, I have my belief that at some point, uh, the, the, those laws will be looked into. And, uh, in no distant time, really, that's, uh, that's my optimism. OK, thank you. I'll get back to you quickly. DK, my good friend, he has, um, he took Nigeria by storm in a lot of ways. And uh, at some point, he had, um, he had, uh, that's to DK now. Yeah. DK at some point had a, a lot of important people quoting his, um, uh, his uh, poetry on, uh, on, on unity in diversity and all that. I remember uh, the vice president of the country um, had reason to use his quotes to, Buttress an argument about uh, Nigeria and uh, the management of our diversity and the, the plea for unity, and, uh, for unity of purpose. So, um, like I said, DK, yourself, and, uh, and Karabo uh, are, are, are really uh, eminently qualified for this discussion. Uh, I have a second uh, question for DK. Uh, DK, we talked about this issue of heritage, you know. Because some of the arguments against prejudice you know, is, uh, or rather in support of prejudice, is the, the need to protect your exclusive heritage. And these heritages are really very important. Cultural vestiges are a very plausible argument for exclusive living. You know? That uh, kind of living that keeps other people different, you know, where I have my own ethnic group uh, uniquely packaged with my art and all that. You know, these are things that are legitimately pursued every day. In, all manners of scholarship, whether it's art or literature, you know, everybody wants to put their own best forward. And uh, and uh, to be fair, if I come out as a, uh, as a Nigerian of Igbo ethnicity in, in Southeast and I put up an argument about my ethnicity and I make art about my ethnicity, it is more likely that the Englishman would appreciate what I've done um, as an Igbo person than if I painted, uh, made uh, art like an Indian, you know. So, uh, in, in other words, we all, um, in our way, uh, find it complementary for uh, others to have their own. Uh, um, uh, I will not even use prejudice as but this self-preservation, which uh, quite often also uh, is a lot of in a lot of ways intertwined with uh, prejudicial uh, behavior. Uh, so, DK, I would like us to. Uh, I would like you really because you're somebody who really just stood between. DK is someone who is very proud of his ethnicity. He, he pushes um, his art. Uh, he makes very bold statements about his art from the background of, um, of, of his ethnic, uh, from his ethnic background, if I put it that way. At the same time, he also preaches um, a collective living. So a lot of people tend to find conflict. You know? It takes a lot of discernment to be able to uh, place these two. Together and work with them in parallel, and he's able to do that successfully. But a lot of people don't don't uh, get to understand it. So I don't as I see arguments on social media and all that. So DK, you, I, I'd like you to um, tell me how you think this is all workable. You know, we have a, a country of uh, of three fifty uh, ethnic groups or more, and then there are clamors everywhere for succession. People have so many cogent reasons or not, you know, for 
for us to go our separate ways to restructure. There are so many. At some point, I got tired of it. Now I, I prefer not to get involved in these arguments. And uh, I, I fully align with uh, DK's uh, worldview about the need to put some of these small things aside and look at our collective problems. That we, are. we are Nigerians, whether we like it or not. So, DK, I would like to shed some light on, on how you think this all is workable. I don't know how to put this question together yeah. to. I think I, yeah, can you the gist of it. Uh, one, let me say that I I don't I don't believe in unity for unity's sake. Uh, so I I talk from a place of honesty to my own social cultural trajectory as well. What I find a bit difficult to understand is how people are able to just choose one category, one, one tag and say that this is all I am. Somebody will say I am Alsa and, and that is all I am, or I am this and that is all I am. My trajectory is different. I come from one area of the country, but I was born in another area of the country grew up in another area of the country, went to school in another area of the country. So yes, uh, ethnically I'm Igbo and I'm proud of it, but I'm also a Lagosian. I am also somebody that went to school in the North. So I'm comfortable with the diversities within me. And I am true to that fact. So I'm, I'm not so much, I, I don't have a problem with you if really all that is within you is that one identity. Be honest with it, say that that is who you are. But in our country, we have people that ignore the diversities within them because they are forced by the political system to choose just one. And that is also the problem I have with sort of what you were saying about how even from the point of view of the West, you know, they yes. expect us to be tribal. Yes. They have these labels they expect you to fit in. And listen, I'm somebody that believes, for instance, many people find it controversial, but I think English is an African language. I don't care how it came, I don't care how it landed on the continent, but it's here. I use it, I bend it, I break it, I say it, it's mine. So a white man that says, oh, because you speak English, you're not an authentic African, like who are you to determine my authenticity? It is my identity. How can a language I grew up speaking, a language I think my thoughts in, you say it doesn't belong to me. So you create this dissociation between yeah. people and their true selves. And I'm simply saying that people that are truly diverse within them should be allowed to say so and, and be proud of it. In Nigeria today, you will be shamed. If, for instance, I'm an Igbo person, but I don't really speak my language. Instead, I speak Yoruba. I'll be shamed for this. As an Igbo person, you must speak Igbo. You must know Igbo culture. But I grew up somewhere else. So I'm not even allowed to be true to myself. I'm constantly shamed. Absolutely. So this is where my advocacy comes from. It's not so much I'm saying we must all be one, but I'm saying that we must all be true. Yeah. The way we are, our sociocultural makeup today is not the same as it was 50 years ago. So we cannot speak to each other with the same language we're using 50 years ago. And then two, my real advocacy is empathy. I know that we are different. We'll always... Absolutely. Difference will never be eradicated from humanity. We're always going to have a reason to be different. But empathy simply means understand my point of view. You don't have to agree with it, but just understand where I'm coming from. This will then moderate how you 
come to the table. You don't come to the table with a zero-sum attitude. You are my enemy. The only way I can live is if you die. You're my enemy. The Absolutely. only way I can prosper is if I impoverish you. The moment you have, the moment you're able to see the other person's perspective, you're able to come with a give and take attitude. Okay, you know what? I get where you're coming from, but you know, consider my position. I consider yours. I shift a bit. You shift a bit. That live and let live attitude. So I'm not. I'm just. I just feel that this view that you can have this. A puritanic, ethnically pure society or religiously pure society or ideologically pure society is a utopian idea and that elite, the only way you can have that is by genocide, by killing. Yeah, absolutely. Well, if you follow that train of thought, it's going to lead you to very violent and ugly acts. Humanity needs to accept its diversity. It's like a marriage. A good mm. marriage is one that constantly resolves its issues. There's nothing like yeah. and it, it doesn't happen. It's, 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 a, it's a relationship where you're constantly fixing things. That's a good relationship. And that's the way I see human society, that there is no point wishing for what will never be possible, except yeah. you are willing to dip your hands in blood and eliminate the other person. And even when you've done that, after 50 years, diversity will reappear again because it's... So we might as well evolve a system for managing it rather than seeking to exterminate it. So Absolutely. That's where I come from. Absolutely. Thank you. I had a, a discussion like that where I made a simple quote. I said, to your tense, O Israel, is, is an obsolete idea. I'm sure that language was used uh, thousands years, of years ago, and we, we can't insist, insist on it right now. Uh, one of my lecturers, Professor Nyako, even put it better. Professor Nyako said, the modern man is a collage. It's like a collage. You're Nigerian, you're putting on Italian shoes, your shirt is from China. Glasses probably from America. So <laughs> you cannot completely lay claim to an exclusive uh, ethnicity or, or, or identity. You know? that, that, that is the nature of the modern man. It's not, a, it's not something that uh, is not reversible the way a lot of people are looking at it. So um, my attitude about it is that those who are thinking of uh, putting these exclusive race uh, relations and exclusive ethnicity are the ones who are actually living in utopia. That's my understanding of it. And, and, and if you're thinking diversity, you're actually more real about, about the state of uh, humanity at this, uh, at, in this century, you know, uh, really. Uh, so I, I, I align with your thoughts very much, very much. Thank you, thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you, Obi. Carabon, yeah, back to you. Um, I hope I'm, I'm pronouncing your, your name very well. That's fine. Yeah, because sometimes, you know, language problem. Um, okay, now we talk about uh, gender equality. Um, we always, I don't know, Africa, we always tend to, I don't know whether to say we're always behind in this thing, maybe because of our own uh, balkanized history. A lot of, we find ourselves always struggling more about a lot of these social issues, more than um, other, other, other parts of the world. Of the world. And I, uh, yeah, it could be a result of our balkanized history that slowed us uh, down. Um, I'm thinking um, Africa has, um, I don't know whether it's a, it's, a, it's a problem of patriarchy, as where we have uh, societies where the man is everything, you know, and uh, 
And uh, of recent, women are out there now, uh, jobs for women, people are um, now aspiring to anything they want to do. And it's, it's creating a lot of tension, you know, insecurities and all that. And a lot of our politics, uh, a lot of the political views I, I see around me, even including men in local and foreign relations, sometimes some of them tend to this uh, fear of uh, the rise of uh, women in, in uh, in social life, whether it's power, yeah, I see a lot of support. Sometimes when I see support for dictators, and uh, uh, sometimes I, I see them as uh, uh, anything that has to do with women, people tend to fight, and, you know, and uh, as if uh, uh, there's, a, uh, there's a, a fear for 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 gender equality you know, in the broader sense. Um, and you've done this for quite some time. Uh, I would like you to just shed some light. Um, on some of your activities regarding gender equality. Um, if you can give us a nutshell, even about South Africa, I've, um, I'm happy to talk with you because uh, at least I'll get more light on how your own um, uh, challenges about gender equality um, are being tackled and what are your, your fears and hopes about, about the future of gender equality in South Africa. The issue is not gender equality. Gender equality is, is, is a euphemism that still makes in men insecure. And hmm. the project that we're looking at here is dismantling patriarchy, you know? And yeah. uh, when there's a lot of insecurities and there's a lot of tension, when women claim autonomy over their, their time, over their futures and over their bodies, hmm. uh, the tensions and the insecurities come from men. And in terms of, you know, in a lot of sort of anti, you know, anti-slavery, uh, black freedom, there's, you know, there's that comment saying that any request for equality or freedom is, is treated by a, as a threat by, by those who are responsible for doing the oppression. Mm. You know, so, I mean, in terms of my work, it's not, it's not a job, you know, uh, because I inhabit a black woman's body. Yeah. You know, so um, it's, it's, I have to do it in order to survive. And uh, at the same time, I have to create that space. And I think in terms of, you know, um, in terms of a feminist, in terms of a feminist world and a, and, and a feminist kind of thinking, which basically is insisting upon freedom from patriarchy. Um, I speak for myself and for my conception of myself in the world to say it's not equality with men that I'm looking for, it's freedom from their oppression. And when we speak about this oppression being intersectional, it incorporates people of every gender and every sexual orientation that doesn't fit into the prism of the hegemonic gender, right? Yeah. Uh, which, is, which is a heterosexual male. And I feel where we, where we experience the most danger as African women is that it starts in our own homes and in our own families. And when you stake a claim for your own space and your, for your own autonomy and freedom and the fact that it's treated as a threat and that you, know, you are to be controlled, your time, your future, your imagination, and that it comes from right inside your home before you can even take it to the streets uh, and makes it a challenge. And I suppose this is where reading and writing is important. I think the most radical thing 
you could ever give a black woman, you could ever give a black girl is education, right? And the fact that even in African countries and, and across the entire continent, that is still contested as to, you know, whether, whether fathers or families decide who to prioritize in terms of who gets education in the house. It's that, you know, we'll educate the boys because they'll uplift the family. If you educate a girl, she's gonna go and make family outside the house richer and not us. So this idea yeah. that we're something worth investing in or not, which presupposes a kind of ownership is a problem, right? And then where it starts to sort of, you know, become a tension between, you know, it, it is a feminist agenda anti-African is, is, is quite, um, it's quite ironic for me uh, because when you look at who is who who carries the burden of taking care of a home but still doesn't get given the right to stake a place in it it's the mother right uh, you look at uh, you know in terms of health outcomes and what happens when you give a man money as to as opposed to when you give a woman money um, the, the data and the science shows that a woman is more likely to invest that money in education and healthcare, and a man is more likely to invest it in himself and women outside the house until he's done with them, right? And the fact that for many, many years, for many centuries, that um, it has been, it has been something that has been, you know, embroiled and entangled with with ideas of of patriarchy, and where you know and i don't mind being controversial here but in terms of our relationship with black men as black women is that black men would rather prioritize racial freedom because it will benefit them and they will overlook the oppression of women in their own midst and with their own their own boots on the women's necks to say, no, we will deal with your issues. You make the tea for us while we fight for every, everybody's freedoms. I'm very passionate about these things. Um, and, 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 and that's when we realize that we don't have as many allies as we like to as black women. That, you know, the men that, 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 that we live with, the men who we raise, who we praise, who we support, uh, just want to step into the shoes of the master. You know, and and they're actually doing this for themselves. They always say that, and and, and, and I suppose you know, even with, so, with ideas like you know, the question that you said me was a scorecard for African leadership on gender equality. Is you know what what do people understand about gender equality? And when you speak about who the hegemons are and whether they're really pursuing um, the safety of black women on the continent, who are they? Right? Because every, every single country on this continent is run by black men. Why are black women yeah. the ones whose lives are most unsafe? Why are black girls still getting their genitals mutilated? Why are girls disappearing? You know, um, why, why are women being trafficked by their own brothers? I mean, my work in Johannesburg, for example, with, with African refugee women, is that they, are, they agreed to be brought into South Africa extrajudicially, right? Because they're running away from situations of war. But their very own protectors, men from their very own country, actually flip the script on them and they traffic them into South Africa. They say, oh, my sister, you thought you'd get here and you'd just be free, you know, you've got to work. So these women are forced into prostitution by their own brothers. And this happens throughout the continent. So I think, you know, this issue for gender equality, let's call it what it is. It's called patriarchy, right? 
and it's called it's called a patriarchy that has got nothing to do with black love because you cannot begin to tell me that as africans we need to build solidarity and love and 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 and, and have this idea that we love ourselves when we oppress the people who are in the majority women yeah. children and queer people right because that's that's and it's not even a sense that i get the data speaks for itself so okay. you know we're going to carry on doing the fighting and deal with the backlash from whence it comes but yeah, yeah. Uh, our enemy is right in the bed with us you know we give birth to that enemy um and i think men need to have that conversation with each other uh, because we're still coming we're still coming for all of it you know myself and you know uh, the, the people in my family like Jack, that like jamil mm -hmm. because it is all yeah. inclusive it's about giving humanity to all humans of africa and if you're not on our side um history will show you that that's that's all i have to say mm -hmm. about that mm -hmm. yeah okay that's interesting um um we should also i think uh, on the general note we should also impress on um, the society our men in particular that uh, I believe the personal, I believe the progress of Africa lies a lot in uh, the empowerment or rather in the, in the support of women to, to push for careers, you know. Um, we don't need support, China, okay? we, yeah. we need liberation, yeah, yeah. we don't need support. No. You know, because liberation, support, more or less. support, I think it's the support from men comes at a price, right? You got to pay okay. for it. You pay yeah. for it on your back, you pay for it with free labor in the house. You don't want your support, mm. you want liberation. Then we can okay. agree on working together once that has been leveled. I would assume that liberation is also a form of support in the, in the sense that uh, um, letting people do what they want to do is also a form of support. That's what I mean. I mean, we are saying the same thing. Maybe my language might be... Uh, be yeah, I just, I just think, I just find that the construction of the idea of support is a little bit patronizing, you know? Um, I just think that it's about just let people be. You know, let women be. Absolutely. And if you don't, we're going to take it back. I mean, I'm, I'm very militant about that. And yeah, that's where it is. Yeah. Mm. Interesting. Um, some of the most efficient countries in the world are run by women. And uh, uh, some of um, the statistics you had about uh, COVID-19 suggest that uh, the, many of the countries in Europe run, run by the ladies have done better. I don't know how factual that is, but that is what has been going around. I'm not seeing people disputing that. So I think we should borrow a leap from that. And if not anything, that women have something to, they're pushing for things, they have something to prove. You know, I think we, the men in many cases have become a bit entitled and all that. And we need people who are really pushing for, to make a statement to, to get into power, especially in Africa. So, uh, that's on a general note for me. We just have about uh, two minutes more, so um, I wish we could do this for two hours, really. Um, I knew we couldn't exhaust it, because I have a whole lot of things in my head. You know. I have a whole lot of things in my head to, to say, and uh, hopefully we will, we, will, we will be together sometime to talk about this. Thank you. Thank you, Karabu. And DK. Yeah. Thank you, thank you, thank you. I, I just didn't ask enough questions. Uh, I, I just have two minutes. I can't do much with it, really. An hour is never enough. Just... Yeah, time is never enough. Uh, that's why we must, we must reschedule again, and uh, uh, we'll hopefully we'll have more time next time. And Jamil, it was my pleasure. I, I was happy when I saw the, the collection. I, th I thought I was one of the luckiest. Uh, moderators really when I <laughs> when I saw the, the personalities I was going to work with.